As we prepare to hear this morning's message, I'm going to pray for illumination. It sounds like a good prayer, doesn't it? Shine the light, Lord. Shine the light on us. We need eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things in his word. And that's what I'll pray. Let's pray. Oh God, how we ask now that you would indeed do that. You are the, the maker of the eye and the maker of the ear. Would you remake our eyes and ears this morning that we would see, hear, and believe the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning comes from the first chapter of James. James is reputed to be the brother of our Lord, and I believe that, and he writes a very Jewish, wisdom-oriented book. It's short, it's pithy, it's to the point, and he teaches us in a New Testament context what wisdom is all about. And so we'll be reading this section of James, which addresses trials and tests and temptations. This is God's eternal word. It cannot be broken. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I have a lot to say this morning. I hope you have a couple of hours. <laughs> Sunday is like heaven, and I don't think there's clocks in heaven because it's eternity, so it just keeps going. So, right? I mean, what's the problem? I thought about preaching a post-Christmas sermon called, Is Santa More Like Jesus or Moses? I was going to open with an illustration from a song by the Killers that I like. It's called, Don't Shoot Me, Santa. I've tried my best all year. <laughs> of course, he's not like Moses, in my opinion. He's more like Jesus, but that would be an interesting conversation. Let's have that some other time. I'm going to beginning, if you'll notice, in the back of the bullet, and I'm going to beginning for the for the time that I'm with you and helping fill the pulpit as you're looking for a new pastor, I'm going to be beginning a series of sermons on leadership in a missional church from 1 Timothy. And that will begin next Sunday. This Sunday, though, I think it's important for us to pause as the year cha changes and as the calendar changes to think about what's gone behind and what's coming. Um, in a way, God doesn't recognize birthdays, he doesn't recognize months, he doesn't recognize years. A day is like a thousand years with the Lord. These are, I think it was Caesar that invented the calendar that we're using. There's nothing particularly sacred about January 1. 
There's lots of different calendars and different religions around the world. But yet, this is our system. And we just threw a big celebration about the birth of Christ, and we threw a big celebration about the changing of the, new, of the old year, you know, out with the old and in with the new. It's on all of our minds, right? The newspaper's coming out with articles on New Year's resolutions. We're either disgusted with that or we're hopeful that maybe this will be the year that I will and what are the top three resolutions. Stop some habit like drinking or something, lose weight, you know, start exercising, be nicer to my wife. She told me to say that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> so I've chosen to preach this morning on trials as a way of thinking about the new year. And because I'm a teacher and because some of us are students, I've decided to take the perspective of tests. And so the title of the sermon is Passing the Faith Test. And I'm starting this way because I know as students, you're probably not looking forward to going back to school. So I'm trying to get you in the mindset, to get you warmed up, okay? I won't be handing out an actual test, don't worry. Because the tests that I'm talking about, as my title suggests, are tests of faith. Tests of faith. The specific text that inspired me for this is verse 3 of our passage. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And so my main point today is that God tests our faith to make us strong. That's what it says. The testing of our faith makes us strong. And it goes on to explain that the strength that he gives us when he tests our faith or after he's done testing our faith is for a reason. He strengthens us for the next one. He tests our faith to give us strength and he strengthens us for the next test. So God is preparing us. He is training us. He is testing us. The Puritans used to speak of, of our trials in this life like God tuning our lips to sing in the heavenly choir. He is tuning us and retuning us. The guitar sitting in the closet that I was going to learn years ago and never did is not in tune. And when I pick it up and try to play the two or three chords that I know, it sounds awful because it needs to be tuned. The strings need to be stretched. And that's what God does when he tests us. He stretches us to prepare us for life forever in his presence. I need to begin, though, with a warning. This is, a, this is one of those famous Christian passages. There's probably two dozen. You know, the ones that show up on calendars and, and on bumper stickers and, and, and the ones that people cite as their life verse. Do you have a life verse? Maybe this is it. 
Count it all joy, my brothers. And it's one that's repeatedly referred to when we're trying to figure out who we should marry or where we should work or what school we should attend. If any of you lacks wisdom, we're told, let him ask God and he will give generously to all without finding fault. Just ask the Lord if you, if you have a question and he will answer it for you. This is not what this verse means. And my manuscript says, au contraire, mon frere. <laughs> this is not what this, this text says. God is not like a Ouija board where we put our hands, if you will, on the scriptures and we close our eyes and we get into a spiritual frame of mind and we say, Lord, should I take this job or this job? And he says, yes or no. God is not in the business of filling out our checklists of where we should go and what we should do. A give me an answer theology has been a detriment to many. This has taken me a long time to realize. The way I think I can summarize it for you so you can remember it easily, this passage is not about information, but inspiration. The wisdom being discussed here is not about information to make the decisions that you need, this, this path or that path. It's about inspiration, and I hope to explain that as we go this morning. The passage then isn't primarily about decision making, but it's about God preparing us for heaven through the trials that he sends us. And brothers and sisters, if you're having trouble bearing up under those trials, keeping your eyes on Christ, let him, let her ask God and he will give generously to all. This is the faith test that we're in. And so I will be speaking of passing this faith test under three points First, your holy preparation. Second, your game day attitude or your test day attitude. And third, your successful result. First of all, your holy preparation. To pass the test, you've got to prepare. How many times did my parents tell me, if you want to do well on the test, you have to study? And of course, being a faithful, dutiful, proactive, diligent son, I always waited until the last minute to do so. This was not holy preparation. This was half preparation. When I was in high school, I was a runner, and I ran on the track and the cross-country team depending on when the tennis season was. So if tennis was in the spring, I ran cross-country in the fall. If tennis was in the fall, then I ran track in the spring. And my track coach in, in high school was Coach T, and he loved to tell us, you know, coaches have they've got these sayings, and they keep saying them until you get sick of them. And Coach T always said, when you're sleeping, your opponent is training. <laughs> ah, what, am I not supposed to sleep? But he's right. He's right. When you're sleeping, your enemy is training. It's profound. The one who trains the most 
performs the best. And so James takes this point of view as well. In verse 2 of our text, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, he uses three different words, I think, that show the importance of a holy, a sacred, a diligent preparation. The first word is when you meet trials or encounter, some of your translations may say. The word sounds generic, but it's actually more specific than you think. It suggests the idea of falling into or being overtaken. When you're surprised by trials is a way we could phrase it. By definition, the only preparation you can make for a surprise trial is none. It's too late. So all holy preparation has to take place when? Ahead of time. We've got to prepare today for the trials that we don't know tomorrow, the ones that will surprise us. The other word that's important in this idea of preparation is this word count or consider. When you meet trials of many kinds, verse 2 says, count it all joy or consider it pure joy. This term refers to a way of thinking. It implies intentionality. It's, it's a word that we might use in a math problem. If we're working out a math problem, consider each step. And, and I always encourage my, my kids, and they can vouch for this, show all your work, right? Show every step. Consider each step. Count each step. Show that process that you're going through. Count it all joy, step by step by step. Patterns like this, thinking patterns like this, because he's asking us to think. He's saying, think about things in this reflective, careful way. It doesn't happen automatically. I remember I, I uh, took calculus in high school. So when, when I went to college and had to take sort of a basic calculus class to get that uh, what is it, the prerequisite, right, out of the way, I figured out, I've, I've taken calculus already. I don't need to study. I can just show up and take the test. Wrong. First of all, high school calculus is nothing like college calculus. Second of all, I didn't remember half of what I learned in high school calculus. I didn't consider, did I? I didn't count like I should have. And Tiger Woods does. He shows up at the practice tee, and, and he shows up at the practice tee after his round. He's considering, he's counting, he's preparing, he's making preparations. This isn't just positive thinking. Consider it pure joy. No, this is a, a reflective, uh, almost an accountant approach to our preparation. And the third word that I like here is various or many the, the, the origin of this word suggests a rainbow, multicolored, when you face the multicolored trials that you, that you face. This is like Baskin-Robbins, right? There's 31 flavors of trials. So as I thought about this, Lord, what kind of trials do I face? Well, I face trials at home and trials at work. I face trials shopping and traffic at the bank on a business trip. I face trials on vacation, and occasionally I even face trials at church. I also face trials with friends and with teachers 
and with my wife. I face trials with my parents and with grandparents, neighbors, clients, and people who call on the phone at dinner time. I also face trials when I'm angry and when I'm impatient, when I'm covetous or disrespectful, lazy, overbearing. I face trials at these times as well. And what's what so the trials are multicolored, but what do they all have in common? They always surprise me. Always. I'm doing fine. Things are fine. Everything's great. Wham! I get hit by a trial. I know I'm probably the only one who that happens to. So we need holy preparation or we will not pass the faith test that God sends us. The best example I thought of in scripture, and I love scriptural examples, is David. We've actually just recently heard about him. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 17, a small portion. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David, I assure you, was not out herding the sheep, thinking, boy, I better make this slingshot count because I'm about to have the battle of the ages in a couple of years. No way! He's just out doing his job, faithfully, quietly. No one's paying attention. His brothers don't even know where he's at. He's by himself. His only audience is God. And yet, in this preparation, what did God do? He prepared him to literally rescue the people of God. That's pretty neat. So how does this apply to us, this first point of holy preparation? I think we need to make some resolutions here. And I'm not playing on that word in New Year's, but if it helps you, praise the Lord. Here's a resolution that I think is important for us to have at any time of year. God will use trials to prepare you for his purposes. We need to just commit to that. That's a fact. We need not to fight against that. Here's a word. Accept it. Okay? Accepting this reality. God will test you this year. He will. And he's doing it because he has holy purposes in your life. That needs to be part of our, just our basic orientation. Number two. God is determined that the little things that you do now before the trial comes are the best way for you to meet that trial. The little things, the tiny things, the insignificant things, that's how he's wanting you to prepare for this trial. As I thought about this, I, I thought about a frustrating disconnect in my life on a subject of Christian disciplines. Oftentimes, I read the Bible, I pray, I'll get up early, I'll do everything right to prepare for the trial, 
just like I've counseled you, and what happens? I still fall flat on my face. I hate that. Come on, God. I did all the right things. So I'm urging you, don't neglect these Christian disciplines. Reading through Scripture, praying Scripture, meeting with God's people, being a part of a community group. All of these things are important, but they don't, they don't fix it. You can't sort of put it in the bank. You know what I'm saying? When the trial comes, it will come and it will take you to your extreme and beyond. And that's why it's a test of faith. That's why it's a faith test. If it were something you could do, it wouldn't be a faith test. But he's testing your faith, which means you've got to trust him. At the end of the day, it's Christ in you, and it's not your preparations. And I need to make that clarification. So ultimately, as we apply this to our, ourselves, we need to rest in Christ every single day. And I do find being in community, being in, in corporate worship, so making it a point to be faithful in attending the, the worship of God on Sunday, I do find that to be helpful because for all of my private disciplines, there's nothing like being around other people to encourage me. And this is great. This is a great assembly. But being around smaller groups of people, which is exactly why the elders have started the community groups, that, I think, is essential. It's essential. So let's, let's have that in mind, seeking to keep Christ in our focus as we gather together. Second point this morning is our game day attitude or our test day attitude. Not only does passing the faith test require a holy preparation, You've got to come with the right attitude when the test arrives. Our text indicates that the game day attitude God requires is one of joy. This also has been a source of great trouble for me as a Christian because I'm told that I should be happy that this trial is, I'm experiencing this trial. No, thank you. This is not fun. This is not happy. This is not joyful. And then the enlightened theologian who's speaking to me usually says something like this, oh, but happiness is a feeling and joy is that steady, unchanging commitment of hope. And I think, that sounds right, but it still doesn't help. <laughs> I mean, how in the world are we supposed to be joyful in trial? I don't know. Point three. There is, um, my family is connected to Caterpillar in two ways. First of all, my first pastorate was in Peoria, Illinois, headquarters of Caterpillar International. And second of all, my wife's father was a life, lifelong employee for 35 years of, of, of Caterpillar lift trucks. And very near here, there's a place where Caterpillar tests their trucks. It's called the Proving Grounds. And when they test the trucks, they put them through their paces. They push them to the max. Now, if I was a truck and I got pushed to the max, I'd be steaming. All of my parts would be at the, you know, the belts would be loose. The rubber would be too hot. Everything, the metal would be 
close to overheating. I'd almost shoot a rod, you understand? We're trying to take it to the very limit. That would not be joy. But knowing that the one who's testing me built me and is going to make me stronger after this test, that is joy. That's as close as I can come to an answer. So the game day attitude has to keep our eyes on the maker, the one who sent the trial, the one who designed us. He's not testing us past the red line, but right up to it. He knows how far to push us. And he pushes me differently than he pushes you. And in the same situation, he pushes me differently than he pushes you to a different amount and with different factors. There's different variables. So we're all unique in that way. And so sometimes the reason I don't have joy is I'm looking at all of you and going, God, why are you singling me out? And I forget. He single all of you out too, just in ways that I happen to be stronger, or it doesn't, it, it isn't, that wouldn't be a test for me. So verses two and three talk about this joy business, and I think, I think there's a couple of words that need to be clarified, again, that I've, I've always wondered about. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, he says, for you know that the testing of your face produces steadfastness. I want to look at the two words, all joy and no. The ESV says all joy. I have no idea what that is. All joy. Count it all joy. I never talk like that. All joy. I don't even know what that means. So the NIV does a little bit better in terms of trying to tell us what James is saying by saying, consider it pure joy, all in the sense of uh, it's nothing but joy is what the NIV is saying. I like that idea, but I don't think that's what the text is saying. Here's what I think it's saying. I think the all doesn't go with joy. I think it goes like this. From every angle, count it joy. All together in all of your considerations, from that perspective it's joy, from that perspective it's joy, from that perspective it's joy, from the fact that, that God's getting glory in the world, from the fact that the people around me are seeing me grow in Christ, from the fact that I'm less worldly and more heavenly minded after this experience, from the fact that those who don't yet believe see God at work in the world in my life, no matter where you look and how you see it, there is joy at the end. That's what I think it means. The second word is knowing that I think needs to be talked about a little bit. The word know implies that you know. So, so he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you need trials of various kinds, for you know. Well, if you don't know, it's not going to be joy. If you do know, then you have a fighting chance. This is significant. It relates to our preparation again, doesn't it? You've got to know before the trial comes in order for you to know when the trial's here. Here are some things that I know. Hebrews 10.36 For you have need of endurance 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. Romans 8.18, that great chapter, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with what is coming. 1 John 4.4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I know that. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you experience all kinds of trials. I know that. That the testing of my faith is part of God's will. John 16.33, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And my favorite example in all of Scripture, Paul, who says, praying for this thorn to be removed from his flesh, no, God says, my power will be perfected in your weakness. So that at the end of Paul's life, he can say, 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not only for me, but for all who long for his appearing. I didn't do the research that I wanted to on this second point, but C.S. Lewis talks about, he defines joy in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And essentially what Lewis says, he says this. He says, there is something of grief in every joy. There is something of longing. There is something incomplete, he says, in every joy. This is where I think he comes from. He's saying that, that, that no matter what, joy is always about the fulfillment. And until we are fully fulfilled, we will always experience grief, even in our greatest joy. There will always be a tinge of longing. And the mistake we make is that we think we can manage our way out of that grief in this life. And people do all kinds of stupid stuff to try to get rid of that, that hint of grief, and it doesn't go away. It's built into the system because God wants us to keep our eyes on him. Do you remember when I said in the beginning, this isn't about information? This is about inspiration. We need to be inspired to focus on Christ. Finally, the, 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 the test that we're taking here requires holy preparation. We've got to study. We've got to prepare. We've got to have our test day attitude, our, our game day attitude. We've got to come, right, with your game face. And that requires, again, it goes back to the preparation. We've got to know some things for that. Thirdly, what is the result? The result is successful. This is what I mean. Did you learn from it? There was an older saint in my first church, and she always told me, she was very faithful in this, Leona, she always told me, she said, if you don't learn the test this time, God will send it again. <laughs> she knew, and she was right. The result is successful if you learn something, my friends. You are not a failure if you're experiencing temptation and trial. 
You're a failure if you don't learn something from it. Falling on your face isn't the failure. It's rising again, Proverbs says. The wise man rises seven times. God intends us to fail, not because he's a mean father, but because he loves us as a father. He wants to put us in a place of growing and loving. And we, ne- we don't grow unless we fail. If you, if you like to exercise, when you, when you do a, a bicep curl, you might do it to failure, to where you can't do one more. And then you regret for about three days that you did that. And then you start thinking after a few weeks of that, you're going, I'm feeling pretty good. Because what are your muscles doing? They're being torn. They're failing. And then they're rebuilding. They're failing. And then they're rebuilding. So success is failure. I don't understand that, but that's how God is working in our lives. We know we've succeeded when we've confronted the trial and we've learned something from it. When I was a high school science teacher, I gave a lot of multiple choice tests when I started out at the very beginning. They were quick, and I usually was up late grading, and so it was the best way for me to take care of that responsibility. But then as I became a a more experienced teacher, I discovered something. The test wasn't just something for me to get off of my plate. I was actually designing a learning experience for my students. And when I told this to my students, they all groaned. So (laughs) it's okay if you groan. But that's what tests are. They are not the end of the learning experience. They simply continue it in another format, in another context. The test itself is a learning experience. And that's what our passage is saying. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The goal is not mastery, but increasing our endurance, increasing our strength. Ultimately, these tests result in what? Let steadfastness have its full effect so that, insert, in heaven, you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're in a long-term process here. It's going to take us a while to get there. But when we do, God's work will have been complete, and the angels will sing. So even if we don't learn as much as we should in each and every trial, God continues to love us like a father, giving us good gifts. I find that often in these situations I feel overwhelmed. And as I conclude, I'd like us to reflect on that feeling. I'm in a trial. I'm overwhelmed. I've turned the crank on the engine too many times and now it won't start. I've flooded it. And I'm stuck. That's the moment when you need inspiration. You don't need to know which door to open. You need to know who put the doors there and who's behind both of them to bring you to his perfect peace. You need the kind of acceptance that only heaven can give you. The acceptance that says, no matter what I'm facing, I know that Jesus loves me, that Jesus is caring for me, and that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. That's the wisdom I need when I'm stuck. And do you know the beautiful thing? Either door is fine. Door A, door B, or door C. Because God is behind all of them. We don't need to know the exact door to take. 
We need to know the one who's taking us through the door, whichever one we choose. That takes wisdom. That's the wisdom that James is talking about. And that's why the, the, the problem with the double-minded man isn't that he or she just doesn't pray hard enough or believe hard enough. It's that he or she isn't looking to Jesus, but actually looking for an answer, looking to herself or to himself or to some other counselor or book or, or system or whatever. That's the double-minded person. And that's why God has such intense words of rejection for that person. <coughs> Look at what they say. Unstable in all his ways. He shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord because God is the God who brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. This passage is about who you worship. And God is calling us to worship him in the midst of the trial. Let's ask him for wisdom. Amen.